few minutes of japa. So, is everyone familiar with chanting? Hi, what's your name? Hi, Ken. Ken, yeah, hi, Ken. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, well th welcome. Thanks for being here. Have you ever chanted on beats before? On beats? Like these? No. Okay. So in case anyone needs a bit of a refresher, these are called japa beats, or japa mala. And uh, there's 108 beats. And as a kind of meditation that's appropriate for the Gita, we chant a mantra that's dedicated to Krishna as the speaker of the Gita. And using the first and third fingers, and starting on the bead that's just to the right of that central bead, there should be one bead that stands out on the model. It's going to the bead that's on the right of that. Using the first and third fingers, there's uh, the Krishna mantra, or if you have a mantra, a different mantra that you would prefer to chant, please do so. We chant the Krishna mantra, which goes like this, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna Krishna Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare and then move to the next beat and in that way you go around and that's called one round <laughs> so we usually do between a half round and a round before we start class so you're welcome to join if you'd like and uh, if you want it's easier for you to so they don't touch the ground or your feet you can loop them around your neck because they're considered sacred beats. Everyone have Japa beats? So let's just chant for a few minutes. So. Thank you. 
This is called Japa, and morning hours are a wonderful time of day to chant Japa. It's contemplative, it's soothing, it reduces the metabolic rate, brings it down, <laughs> starts your day right. We were talking, Sharon and I were talking earlier also about the power of sacred sound. The mantras are called Nada Brahma, God in sound. Sound is very powerful. I mean, you make the right sound, you can shatter a window. You make the right sound, you can rally a nation to war. The sound is very strong. So if material sound can do so much, imagine what spiritual sound can do. Spiritual sound emanates from a different stratum, a different place of origin. Consciousness is stimulated by sound. So if you make the right sound, you can bring the soul out of hiding. So particularly in this age, Kalev Doshini Rajan Asti Mahan Guna Kirtana Deva Krishnasya Mukta Sangha Param Puranas particularly describe the Krishna mantra as having efficacy in the current age, the age of Kali. Kalev Doshini Day in the age of Mahaguna, one good quality in this age. In previous ages, the yoga practices were not one hour or 90 minutes. They were years and years and years. One pose for days. That's a little difficult for us. Kalayar Doshanije, there's a concession in this age. It's just mantra, mantra yoga. Anyone can. Children, right? So, 
mantra. And now there's kirtan. Kirtan is something that's done as a group. Um, the convention is to first offer one's heartfelt thanks to one's teacher, one's guru. So I begin by chanting a prayer to my spiritual master, whose image, whose photo you see up there on the left. The small picture on the left is Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. Prabhupada initiated me. That's where I got these beads. You got lots of beads. You got beads for chanting, beads for wearing. You got all kinds of beads. So three strands of beads around the neck signifies initiated, officially, formally initiated into bhakti or devotional yoga practice. So a prayer to Prabhupada, and then. Um, the Krishna mantra. So I was thinking today, which melody? Because there are thousands of melodies. So I remember when I was a lad back in the late 60s and first visited a Krishna temple in London. Uh, a dear friend who's passed on now, as they say, named Yamuna, hypnotized me with her chanting, her singing, the celestial. And... Uh, she had this, she was extremely devotional. Yamuna was a large woman. I've never seen anyone that large carry herself so lightly. She was like a, a ballerina. She, would, she didn't walk, she floated. I, I, I exaggerate not here. She would, her life was this poetry in motion. And she wrote a cookbook called Lord Krishna's Cuisine, which received the Seagram's Award best cookbook of the year in 1986 for Indian vegetarian cooking. Anyway, these are melodies that she used to use. It sounds like this. Krishna, 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 Hare. 
very pretty. So why don't we try that together? You'll pick it up. We'll just chant this together a couple of times. Upanishad series that starts uh, January 22nd. Yeah? What time does it start? It's 6 p.m. 6? 6 to 8, I believe. And it's three weeks. And um, Isopanishad is uh, one of the principal Upanishadic texts. There are 108 Upanishads. The Upanishads are considered Shruti, or revealed text like the original Vedas, um, spoken by divinity, not human-made, but divine. The other category of scripture is smriti, which is the commentaries. Now those are people, sages, who have taken the Shruti texts and written their elaborations and explanations on the meaning. But the Upanishads are considered Shruti, And among these 108 Upanishads, which are like, you might say, the headlines, uh, the philosophical headlines of the Vedic philosophy. So that if you took this massive philosophy, philosophy, there's hundreds and hundreds of Sanskrit texts in India, and if you were to bullet point, let's say, the main philosophical themes, you'd find those embedded in the, in the Upanishads. And the use of Upanishads is... Uh, one of the most important, the, the name itself, Isa Upanishad, means, uh, uh, Upa means coming closer to, uh, Ni uh, means sitting down, Shad means uh, uh, approaching, so sitting and approaching and learning at the feet of a guru. Shri Isa Upanishad, Isa refers to Ishwar, the supreme being. So the Yusupanishad is specifically meant for learning about the Supreme Being by approaching a guru, a teacher, and sitting at that person's feet. So the Yusupanishad has a particular 
distinctive, distinctive place. We'll divide it into three sections, and the first one will be situating the Upanishad within the Vedic library. The second one, which I'd like to do some experimenting on you guys today, is uh, about the Upanishad and physics, because the Upanishad refers to um, cosmic structures. The, here's, here's in a nutshell the philosophy of, of the Vedic texts of India. We are all by nature divine beings, sparks of God. Because we share God's qualities, eternity, by nature blissful, filled with self-awareness, knowledge, we also share God's independence. We have a, a minute degree of free will which allows us to choose what to do with our lives. That's never taken away from us. At some point in cosmic time, so far back it's impossible to trace, certain souls, not all souls, but certain souls, chose to move away from the paravyoma, spiritual realm, which is the soul's natural, original environment, to experiment with what it would be like to live apart. What would it be like to live on our own, putting ourselves at the center of creation, if you will? For those of us who chose that door, the material world exists as an arena to, if you will, act out those desires and impulses. Just by being in this environment over an extended period of time, by which I mean millions and millions of births and deaths, consciousness becomes covered. Our original sense of ourselves as divine beings, eternal beings, in a union of love with God has been suppressed and forgotten. It's still there. It's there within us. It's never lost. But it's covered over. And now we identify with all of those external coverings. The body, the mind, the ego. I am this, I am that, I am mine. Through yoga and the chanting of God's holy names, sacred sound, that original consciousness can be revived. Now there, in a nutshell, you have pretty much the whole Vedic philosophy, and everything else is kind of embellishment on top of that. There are descriptions of the workings of the universe, and the various layers on top of consciousness, and the effects of different kinds of action in the world, and so on. But essentially, that's, those are the basics right there. Yeah? Right away, wouldn't they, in the early stages, be confronted with the senses? And I'm sorry, say again? Right away, the first few stages of moving away from uh, sort of a, a, an automatic connection to feeling towards divinity, wouldn't they immediately be confronted with senses? The, the senses, because that's, that's... The senses. Oh, yes. the senses, so, yes. So, I mean, yes. It, it would seem as though it would be quite abrupt. Yeah, I mean, right off the bat, they have to deal, they're going to have to... That's going to pull them away from I think I understand your question. Say your name again. Ken. Ken, thank yeah. you. It's a very good question. The description given in the Puranas, which are the, if you will, the, the histories of 
the soul's entrance into the material world. The Puranas also include descriptions of life on other planets and, and even other creations. But the specific point that you're addressing is described. The soul does not immediately fall into a kind of mud. There's a gradual covering. At any point along that trajectory of the covering of consciousness, we have the option of turning our face toward the light again. The longer we opt out of that, the more we identify with the senses and the perceptions of the senses. And that's what reinforces the maya ego, the artificial ego. Of, this is me. This is my reality. So you're quite right that it, it, it can be abrupt for most souls coming into the material creation. The, the, the starting point is upper worlds where consciousness is still fairly clear. It's only, if you will, stubbornness. <laughs> that, no, I'm going to stick around a little longer. And the longer we stay, the more covered and the more sensory we become, the more we identify with the sensations perceived by senses. So you're quite right. Um, so what's quantum mechanics got to do with it? That's the question. Michael, this is yours. I didn't do anything with it. It's recorded. Oh, okay. Um, Physics is, is an extraordinarily, extraordinarily powerful lens through which to view the world around us. It, 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 it's, it's marvelous. It's exciting. It's, an, it's adventurous. It's, 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 uh, and, it's, and in many ways, it mirrors the teachings of the Sanskrit Vedic texts. Now, you can go overboard with this stuff. I just I want to throw a caveat or two in here. If we're going to talk about quantum theory and quantum mechanics, first of all, I have no degrees in this. I'm, I'm up here under total false pretenses. So that, that's, that's issue number one. I'll do my best to describe for you whatever I've understood. The second thing is be careful, people, about drawing too close a symmetry between the findings of subatomic physics and quantum mechanics and the teachings of the Vedas. There are some fascinating, what appear to be parallels there. But one realm deals with what can be perceived or imagined, quantum mechanics. The other deals with something that even imagination cannot comprehend. When we talk about consciousness, we talk about something that is beyond even our wildest mental speculations. So, these are indicators, they're arrows, they're road signs that point in a particular direction. And on, as long as we see them in that way, they're quite valid. So, what, I, what I'd like to do is start by showing you a a clip that is not going to be part of the Upanishad series. That's why I'm showing it to you guys. <laughs> I have another clip that I'm using 
in these Upanishad series. I have to. It's my, my brother's stuff. I, I, <laughs> if I didn't do that, I'd be... But Joshua, could it, could it just, couldn't you say that the physicists are moving towards the revealment as is given by the, the rishis? I think some, maybe. Okay. Uh, I know. Let's hope so. Yes, we do so. There are, there are others who are in denial. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's possible to go as deep into the heart of reality as the truly gifted physicists have and not sense that there is some mystery going on here that just cannot be explained. It's too, it's too, and, and, it's too, it's too um, marvelous. Uh, in the movie, I remember um, Dr. Uh, Fred um, Alan Wolf, right? That's his name. Mm -hmm. Says, "Why be in the know when you can be in the mystery?" Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> or as um, uh, Nobel physicist uh, Stephen Hawking once said. We don't need mysticism, we have the math, to which the mystics would reply, we don't need the math, we have the experience. In any case, let's take a look at this clip and then we can, we can yak it up all we want. When, you know, the, what you're saying, the Apana, Sri Upanishad? Was it written, did it, it was divinely came, but was it a same time frame as when this was written, or was it way before? Oh, the Upanishad is way before the Bhagavad Gita. <coughs> the Bhagavad Gita, depending on which time frame you wish to see it in, was codified in written form between 3,000 and 5,000 years ago. The teachings go back much further than that. But uh, the uh, Upanishad is part of the Vedic library, which predates the events of the Gita by quite a while. Hmm? Well, the Vedic period, according to the texts themselves, I have to qualify these things. Because if you talk to you know, an Asian studies professor, he'll you know, walk out of the room if you say this stuff. Um, the tradition says that the Vedic period, the, the original delivery of the Vedic wisdom was at the dawn of time. <laughs> that, that knowledge of the soul and the soul's relationship with the divine enters creation with creation. But it is a porusheya, it comes from a place prior to the creation of the material world and is gifted to souls in this world as a kind of blueprint. So a long time ago. Long time ago. <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> okay, you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, here we go. This, this runs about 16 minutes or so, and, uh, and then we'll have a nice, nice chat. And here we are, the granddaddy of all quantum weirdness, the infamous double-slit experiment. The first people who did these experiments 
Um, and these experiments, you know, experiments, crude experiments of this time, were first performed almost 50 years ago, or more, 60 years ago. Um, those people were flabbergasted. To understand this experiment, we first need to see how particles, or little balls of matter, act. If we randomly shoot a small object, say a marble, at the screen, we see a pattern on the back wall where they went through the slit and hit. Now, if we add a second slit, we would expect to see a second band duplicated to the right. Now, let's look at waves. The waves hit the slit and radiate out, striking the back wall with the most intensity directly in line with the slit. The line of brightness on the back screen shows that intensity. This is similar to the line the marbles make. But when we add the second slit, something different happens. If the top of one wave meets the bottom of another wave, they cancel each other out. So now there is an interference pattern on the back wall. Places where the two tops meet are the highest intensity, the bright lines, and where they cancel, there is nothing. So, when we throw things, that is, matter, through two slits, we get this, two bands of hits. And with waves, we get an interference pattern of many bands. Good, so far. Now, let's go quantum. This is just to break down your prejudice that says a particle is a particle. Now we're gonna, we're gonna, you, you gotta understand it's, it's a particle and a wave. An electron is a tiny, tiny bit of matter, like a tiny marble. Let's fire a screen through one slit. It behaves just like the marble, a single band. So, if we shoot these tiny bits through two slits, we should get, like the marbles, two bands. What? An interference pattern. We fired electrons, tiny bits of matter through. But we get a pattern like waves, not like little marbles. How? How could pieces of matter create an interference pattern like a wave? It doesn't make sense. You gotta understand it's, it's a particle and a wave. Now that you've taken that leap, let's get one step closer to the reality. It ain't either of those either. And it's both at the same time. But physicists are clever. They thought maybe those little balls are bouncing off each other and creating that pattern. So they decide to shoot electrons through one at a time. There is no way they could interfere with each other. But after an hour of this, the same interference pattern is seen to emerge. The conclusion is inescapable. The single electron leaves as a particle, becomes a wave of potentials, goes through both slits, and interferes with itself to hit the wall like a particle. But mathematically, it's even stranger. It goes through both slits and it goes through neither. And it goes through just one, and it goes through just the other. 
All of these possibilities are in superposition with each other. We did these experiments um, and we got certain results. And in the light of these results, we asked a question of the form, gee, which path could the electron have taken through this two paths at birth? Um, and, and if there are two options like that, it's just a matter of standard classical logic, there are four logical possibilities. A, B, both, neither, okay? We went through those possibilities one by one uh, uh, and designed an experiment in each case to test that possibility. And the answer in each of the four cases was negative, okay? It doesn't go through root A. How do we know that? Because when we put in a total of nothing box in root A, um, it has an effect on this particle. A total of nothing boxes don't have any effect on particles that pass through them. It doesn't go through root B for the same reason. It doesn't go through both roots because if we stop the experiment in the middle, we always find it either on one root or the other, but not both. And it doesn't take neither root because if we just block up the two roots and leave everything else open, nothing gets through. So we can systematically, piece by piece, eliminate all of the four logical possibilities, okay, given the assumption that it makes sense to ask the question, which root did it take? That's how we're forced into a position, gee, the only thing left to do here, it's analogous to, um, uh, think about the case of inquiring into the marital status of the number five. Somebody says, gee, is the number five married? Um, you say, no, that's not the right thing to say. The guy says, I see, number five is a bachelor. You say, no, that's not right either. I says, well, I got what else is there? You say, Look, the deal about the number five is, it's not married, it's not a bachelor. That's not a logical contradiction. The trouble here is that the whole question of the marital status of the number five is a question that can't sensibly be raised. Um, that's what we're finding out about these particles. We say, did it take root A? We can eliminate it experimentally. Did it take root B? We can eliminate that experimentally. Did it take both? We can eliminate that. Did it take neither? We can eliminate that. All that leaves us with is going this route that we go with the number five. Oh, I see. Although in this case, it's astonishing. With the, with the case of the number five, it was easy. What this must be telling us is that it somehow fails to make sense even to raise the question in a situation like this, which route did the particle take? Physicists were completely baffled by this. So they decided to pee and see which slit actually goes through. They put a measuring device by one slit to see which one it went through and let it fly. <laughs> but the quantum world is far more mysterious than they could have imagined. When they observed, the electron went back to behaving like a little marble. It produced a pattern of two bands, not an interference pattern of many. The very act of measuring or observing which slit it went through meant it only went through one, not both. The electron decided to act differently. As though it was aware it was being watched. 
So the electron is very peculiar. Electron is very peculiar in the sense that when we are not looking, electron can be here, can be there, or can be over there in a corner of this room. It can be all over, the, all over this room, so to speak. But whenever we look, this is the strange thing about these electrons. Whenever we look, we always find them to be in one particular Geiger counter, although we may have a room full of Geiger counters. We never uh, hear the Geiger counter sticking all over the room. This is the fundamentally important stuff about the electrons. It was here that physicists stepped forever into the strange never world of quantum events. What is matter? Marbles or waves? And waves of what? And what does an observer have to do with any of this? The observer collapsed the wave function simply by observing. We are always the observer. But sometimes we identify with the events so much so that we even lose the aspect of the observer. That's why the materialist gets totally lost and thinks that he could do without the observer. The physics data tells us that, that an object itself is really a, a simplification for what we call out there. One is particularly when we're looking at atomic and subatomic particles or atomic and subatomic matter in any form. What we find is how we go to look at it, what we choose to examine it with, actually changes the properties of what we observe to be out there. Is this the observer and which is so intricate to understanding the wacky weird world of quantum particles and how they react? Is this then the observer and even though we cannot have a quantum field without the observation of scientists who have gone there, who have uncovered it, layer after layer after layer, they're all observers. But not one of them agree conclusively on all points in the field because they are perceiving the field mathematically from different angles of perception. Mathematics shows us clearly that the movement of objects are describable only in terms of possibilities, not the actual events that happens in our experience. Quantum physics calculates only possibilities. But if we accept this, then the question immediately comes, who, what chooses among these possibilities to bring the actual event of experience? So we directly, immediately, see that consciousness must be involved. The observer cannot be ignored. Observer is part of the description of the world. But the observer is not included in quantum physics. We can only describe the objects, not the subject. So we get the idea that the subject must be more fundamental than the objects. Consciousness is more fundamental. We don't know in quantum mechanics how to hook ourselves as observers up 
with the world. We don't know how to treat ourselves as observers as just another part of the physical system that we're describing. The only way we know how to do quantum mechanics as it's traditionally formulated is to keep the observer outside of the system you're describing. Um, the minute you put him in, you get all these paradoxes. And we're forced to say things in quantum mechanics like, look, the book is doing what it's doing because of quantum mechanics, and I see that because I'm there and I see it, and you better not try to analyze that second part of the sentence in terms of applying quantum mechanics to it because it's going to break down. That's why there are these two separate laws of the evolutions of physical systems. One that applies when you're not looking at them, the other that applies when you are. But that's crazy. There's no way that we're ever going to mathematize or put into mathematical formula this very act in which a conscious observer comes up with the answer. People say, oh, the measuring instruments, the recorder records it, and there it is, it's on the tape, it's recorded. You forgot one part of the equation. Somebody has to look at the tape. And until somebody looks at the tape, it ain't recorded at all. Until there's an ear, there is no sound in the forest. The extreme view would be idealism, Bishop Barclay and the Hindu approach, which says that consciousness is all there is. And that all there is is my consciousness, I'm creating you and the camera and, and the world around me, and all there is is, is me. But that is a, a view that's, that's impossible to refute because I can't really prove that you are out there in reality and have your own consciousness, and you can't prove that I'm conscious. So um, idealism, uh, both from the Western standpoint from what Bishop Berkeley said in the Hindu tradition is one possibility. Another possibility, you know, the Copenhagen interpretation says we create reality by an observation collapses the, the wave function. The problem with that is it doesn't, it doesn't say what observation is, it doesn't say what consciousness is. You know, why is our, our brain different from a, a measuring device or anything else? And what is, and, and it kind of puts consciousness outside science. So my view is somewhere in the middle with the, with the Penrose objective reduction where um, the, the, you have a superposition which reaches threshold and self-collapses and chooses a reality at that point. Of a number, it's kind of a multiple choice. It's not like starting from scratch anything you want. It's a multiple choice and a multiple possibilities for each specific collapse. Okay, can we get the light? Now, again, we have to be somewhat circumspect in going about our reaction to what we're hearing and seeing here. There were a few statements that were rather inflammatory, and I'm just wondering what you picked up on. What were some of the things that you heard here that stuck with you? Were there any either examples, statements, ideas, concepts, anything at all, stick with you. What, what did you get from this? Yeah. Say your name so we can all. My name is Samantha. Hi. Um, I, I don't, well, coming from the philosophical perspective, um, it's hard for me not to internally cringe when I hear scientists make statements like, well, I guess you have to look at subjectivity over objectivity. It's like, yeah, duh, I'm sorry. Um, it's, you know, this was a really nice example of um, how we mathematically try to shove things through Procrustean frames in order 
to give explanation to questions that we're problematizing in the first place, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that we have to actually look someplace else. We're really uncomfortable with conundrum, with, with things that don't have some kind of an explanation. An empirical one. Hmm? An empirical one. one that, that yeah, something, something our that our rational, logical thought process can grasp and explain. Why? Because you want to get up tomorrow morning and get on with the rest of your life. You don't want to have to live with this notion that reality is insubstantial <coughs> and I never quite know what to expect. I mean, we grew up from day one believing that if we took a baseball and threw it across the room, we'd be able to anticipate its behavior, depending on how fast and how hard you threw it. It would take a certain trajectory, so many seconds to reach the other side. It would impact at such and such a, you know, pounds per square inch. Their quantifiable measurement is how we define our own sense of reality. And without that, we're adrift. We don't know who we are anymore. When, when, when a, a thoughtful person comes to grips with the idea that nothing is actually substantial, that you, you, first of all, it's all 90% air, and then when you come down to it, what's remaining is just kind of, you know, moving around, <laughs> and, you know, and, and then if you go deep down to the heart of that, it becomes even more unpredictable. That can be existentially terrifying. You know, life's already scary enough. Why do you got to hit me with this stuff now? So what else? What else? Yeah, what, what did you want to... Did you want to add something? That's my favorite part. What you were just describing. That's my favorite part. It's mm -hmm. really fun idea. The idea of getting freaked out and scared? No, the, <laughs> the idea of what it all actually is. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and we, especially back in uh, the 50s, I guess, maybe 40s, they were all shooting for a unified theory to explain it all. Yeah, Einstein had a real problem with this stuff. Yeah. He had a real problem with this. He said, look, you know, uh, for me, God does not play dice with the universe. You know, he, he lived the second half of his life in frustration over not finding that yeah. unified field theory. You know, because for him, the idea that there was some, some part of reality that we would never be able to understand just struck him as unfair and, and wrong. And, and yet, the deeper down we go into the heart of matter, the less clear things become, the fuzzier things become, the less predictable things become. And this experiment in particular, this wave-particle duality, is something that for the past 60 years has just <coughs> completely freaked out people working in the field of, of physics. Because it, it essentially throws down the gauntlet, you know, throws down the glove to everything that we've <coughs> assumed about the nature of reality. Yeah. It reminds me of this idea that somehow truth can be um, empirically deduced, and that makes us, like you said, less terrified. But 
but instead of being terrified, it would be more akin to being kind of gaining, you know, sort of being a little bit um, trusting and finding real beauty in, in the not knowing, you know, because that also is very liberating to think that we, we cultivate and curate these frequencies, and when we go back into them, there's an intersubjectivity, which is actually a response to that type of ideology, right, in terms of philosophy. And so for me, I agree back there too that it's really fun once you get past the initial um, programming. Well, that's no small thing. <laughs> that's no small thing. We live in that, you know, matrix program frame of, of consciousness most of the time. And we depend on the Newtonian predictable way of calculating life for most of our decisions. We need to be able to know how long will it take me to get from, you know, Jiva Mukti to home, you know, and I need to know how many apples can I buy with my budget this week. I mean, there are things that we just need to know based on rational thinking. So the, the fun stuff, as you're calling it, occurs when you reach a certain level of self-assurance. You might even call it a, a yogic frame of mind. And that's where we start making the connections between what we're seeing up here and the, the context of our Gita discussions. Yeah. Psychological and sociological factors aside, if we were to take uh, the same experiment and say that the measurement of the atom changed and it was being done unconsciously and then being observed and now it's being fed back to us, would you say that uh, the level of mastery attained, if in any degree it can be measured, would be the amount of atoms one can consciously um, direct? from the unconscious place? And if so, how would a person possibly develop such a skill set and have a practice towards such a thing? All right, so it's a complicated question. Uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, um, you've leapfrogged a couple of chapters ahead. <laughs> and where you are is, if we are comfortable enough to see this as fun rather than intimidating, and if we come to that place where we are... There was one point, I don't know if you saw it, where the actress, I forgot her name, she's... Marty. Marty... Marty Matlin. Marty Matlin? Maitland? She's walking by a fountain, and the, the voiceover narrator is, is talking about how we get people who don't bring what you're pointing to, a, a conscious intent to their life, get caught up in just being carried away by the waves of matter, the waves of the material energy, uh, and feel helpless in that. I'm paraphrasing now. And then a few minutes later, there was this discussion about what happens when there's a conscious act of observation that takes place. And I think there may be is the beginning of an answer to your complex question. At a certain point in our spiritual growth, if you will, when we come not just to intellectually understand that we're not the body, but that we're the conscious 
atma, the, the, the soul animating the body, at the point where that becomes the homeostasis of our life, when you're living from that place, then I think, yes, you can get to the point you're talking about, which is frankly described in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. There are chapters where Patanjali talks about the siddhis, the kind of mystic powers that are achieved by conscious yogis who, who are able to understand their role in influencing the way matter operates. It's there in the Yoga Sutras, but that's a very, very advanced stage of um, We have to look deeper into the idea of observing something consciously. What does that actually mean? When in the movie, they put the eye. They said, so now we had an observer who could measure what they saw. Is measuring something, observing something consciously? And we might contemplate how conscious do you want to go? Because, of course, in, in yoga, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he speaks about viewing the object not in a sense that you measure the object against you as other than you, but viewing the object in the totality of consciousness, which means there is no object apart from you. You see yourself in the other. And when you see yourself in the other, the other dissolves, and who you thought you were dissolves, and there's only reality. Or Patanjali calls it samadhi, God, oneness. So I think we have to uh, contemplate Consciousness. What does it mean to perceive something consciously? Mm -hmm. I just had a quick question on just what you just said. Um, is the place where I'm coming from is um, anything when applied um, focus and presence to uh, focus is more like a narrowing down of and presence is more like an expansion of. One would be more like a cone, and at the end of the cone, I would say focus, and present would be more like a sphere going geometrically outward in all directions. Uh, the, both of them, I think, um, are what grow meditation, from what I found. And when I said consciously, I meant uh, those sub-elements composing consciousness, because I frankly don't know any definition that comes close to describing that once. Well, the word consciousness means, uh, I mean, con means with, so with knowledge. Um, and I think that's an essential key here, is not apart from, but with, experiencing with. Uh, letting go of our sense, letting go of the ego, whatever you want to call it, letting go of our sense of self, 
as separate from who or what we are observing. To see ourselves in the other. Yeah, that's, I mean, what, what, what's fascinating about this is that it was not in this particular clip, but in other material that you'll see if you sign up for these Upanishad courses. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, things, think, starting Saturday, things reach a level, the deeper down you go into the heart of matter, the farther down you go into the world of subatomic particles, the closer you get to the Planck scale, which is 10 to the minus 33rd or something, it's a degree of smallness so small that you can never perceive it. Just the act of attempting to perceive it alters its nature. On that level of small, smallness, things seem to be reaching a homogeneity, mm -hmm. a oneness, if you will, of energy, what the Sanskrit text would call Brahman, what the Gita calls Brahman. Not the differentiation of I am this and you are that, but a ground of being which is stunningly, stunningly all-inclusive. The one caveat that must be added here from the Gita perspective is that we as the conscious observer never completely lose our individuality. Who is it who is perceiving the oneness of things? Who is it who wishes to shed himself of ego? Who is that individual? That individual, that self, has an integrity that never completely disappears. Which is what I find fascinating in this clip, because that's who the observer becomes. The observer, the, the, the drashya, the one observing, is an inviolable creature. Now again, going down to that level of, you know, the, the oneness of all creation, what disappears is all of the false ego, all of the separation that creates the tensions and differences that characterize the, the gross world that we know, this world. But there's this extraordinary point where the conscious observer is acknowledged as a living being with his, her own integrity which is what allows the act of observation to occur. Well, what I want to say is directly related to what you just said, um, and perhaps answers it. I, um, the question of consciousness is very much related to this word of the fun stuff that people were just saying, and I feel like the conversation can go one of two ways, oneness or duality. And when the I appeared on the screen, I didn't see myself conscious observer and the camera very nicely moved through the eye to see the world to put us in that position. But rather I thought, no, Krishna is that observer and I'm the particle that's moving around on the plane. And when that relationship, that con with consciousness with Krishna is there, it changes the way that I interact with the world. Um, and so you retain that individuality Oneness. We love to, we love negation, we love deconstruction, 
Uh, it's the effect of lots of very fun schools of critical thought theory that have seeped into the popular culture. Um, but it leads us to nothingness, to that to right. Not this, not this, not this, not exactly. that, and what's left. Yeah. Well, if say your name again. Samantha. No, I mean oh. this gentleman. Oh, just Josh. Josh? If, if, if Josh jumped two chapters ahead, Samantha, you've just dropped, jumped about ten. Because now we're going to yet another strata, if you will, of, of reality, which we will talk about in these... Starting Saturday, right, exactly. But the, 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 I mean, I want to, this is great. Just any other comments? Anything else that you'd like? Well, let's give someone else a chance and then I'll come back to you. Any other comments that anyone would like to make about this? Yeah. Can I just, just I wanted, the first study came on, I don't, Sunday in the New York Times, there was another great article saying Darwin was wrong about sexuality. Darwin was wrong. And the first thing I thought when you put on this movie, and I know nothing about science, is science is a product of the material world. It can't create facts. It can't create truth or unchangeable knowledge because the material world's always in flux. So we're starting from a kind of weird premise, approaching it this way. I feel like. Um, I hear you, and and uh, I think there's there's truth to the idea that we can get carried away with our ability to calculate things mathematically and so on. Um, I'm enamored of a quote from Albert Einstein where he says that, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember exactly his words, that when he examines the universe, he experiences a, a sensation of, of wonder, uh, of, of mystery, and that's what he says for him is God, and it what, it's how he feels alive. And he says, if someone has missed that, if you're not sensing that, which is so far beyond anything that we can understand, then you really haven't that you haven't understood what's going on. I, and and my, my teacher actually quoted Einstein saying that in in one of his letters, uh, and he said that's what we're trying to do in Krishna consciousness. Is, is to inspire in people that sense of awe and wonder about the creation. That's the starting point. We, t we had this marvelous conversation earlier today about the word atta. Atta, which occurs in the opening of <clears throat> the Yoga Sutras. It occurs in the opening of the Vedanta Sutra. It's, it's there at the opening of the uh, Yoga Vashishta. No, the uh, Narada Bhakti Sutra. Atha in Sanskrit means now. There's an immediacy to this stuff that we're talking about. It's not 5,000 years ago. It's not old. I mean, it's timeless. It's timeless and it is exciting and it's about who we are in the world we live in right now. Atha. Atha to Rama Jigyasa. Now is the time. Now that we've kind of, we're fed up with everything else, that the, all the pottage of this world. You know, we're fed up with all of the, the half-truths and all of the quasi-pleasures and, and all of the distractions and, 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 and futile 
strivings for fame and, and achievement and all, all, all of the fruit that this consumer culture dangles in front of us to keep us buying <laughs> and keep us in debt. You know, there's like that. You know, now I'm, I'm through with all of that. Now, now I want to inquire about Brahman. Now I want to know what's the real stuff. What's really going on? Talk about anything, basically, you have to first make a partition, from my understanding. I'm sorry, a little louder? To talk about anything, you have to first make a partition in duality, to some extent, from my understanding, because without it, you basically can't speak to other people. Mm-hmm. Contrast must exist for clarity mm-hmm. and uh, preferences. Um, on that note, um, the phrase uttered by Lao Tzu about uh, mastering the self as enlightenment, uh, mastering others as wisdom, um, uh, mastering the self takes strength, Mastering others takes force. I, from my current understanding, see that you can become as enlightened as possible until you have balanced it with a marker of wisdom and external measuring stick to some extent. Uh, The merging of the two has to somehow be balanced. That's probably the most eloquent advertisement for Jiva Mukti Yoga I've heard in a long time. Because what, what you just pointed to uh, was really quite, quite beautiful. Without the practice, nothing works. If, if you do not commit yourself to this, you'll never understand it. Because this is not acquired knowledge. This is realized knowledge. And realization takes practice. Commitment from the heart. Then you can begin to approach the slightest doorstep of, a, of an understanding of these great mysteries. It is from what I understand about um, my little college of ancient times is um, it was skill set based. And if you could do it, you knew it. And if you couldn't, you don't. And if it can't be measured, then it's just Right, and, and they're not skills that can just be acquired by academic achievement, you know, by, by book learning. It's a, yeah, philosophy is important, but without the character development to go with it, that knowledge will not be revealed. It, it, it is something that is gifted to us. We're talking about very profound stuff, and it's not anything that can be fully appreciated without chanting Hare Krishna without practicing your yoga because that's refining the receptors that allows that knowledge to enter you clear away from the heart all of the bitterness, anger frustration confusion that creates interference with that knowledge to come out then it can come out yeah, sure. I was going to say there's a, a lot of fear in the material world about going to that place. Because in the scientific world, if you went into a, let's say, more of a superconscious place to um, and start to recite what your perceptions were in that state, they would say you were insane, and they would find some way to s- dismiss what you had to say because of the fear of the fact that what you're saying could actually be true. Because well, they this can't is. Find a way to prove what you're 
Sure. It's why it's why you don't get scientists talking about you know coming to yoga class very often. There there is a concern for loss of credibility. You know they worked very hard. Let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They spent a lot of money getting their PhD in subatomic <laughs> physics. You know and 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 they they worked you know, staying up so many nights to write their thesis on, you know, whatever the topic was. And they finally got tenure, God bless them. <laughs> you know, and, and, and to ask them to put all of that at risk, you know, is a little unreasonable. So it really takes someone of great courage and uh, introspection, who's, who's willing to kind of risk it all, to step forward and say, Yes, I am a physicist, and I also believe in God. You don't, you don't find too many of them. Michael? This conversation, um, that I keep walking in and out, sorry about that, it reminds me of the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, verses like 3, 4, 5, and 6, where Krishna says, those individuals who practice the, um, their yoga, their, their individual self, or something like that, they can reach enlightenment, but it's harder that if you practice your bhakti or devotional service, it's much easier to get to the same world. This is what this conversation seems to be having, that you can get there with science and material. Yes, practice. absolutely. It's absolutely you can. A hundred times harder than if you just surrender and make yourself devotional. It's harder, it's more time-consuming, um, it, it's, it's less joyful. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, th you know there are many ways to approach this. the The thing is, just start walking. You know, that, that's really what the Bhagavad Gita is attempting to do in those verses. It's attempting to encourage that. Look, if you're not ready for this whole you know Krishna devotion thing, that's okay. But do what you can. Study. Do something. Do Set out on a path. Yeah. And eventually you'll get to that place in the heart. Mm -hmm. You know, all roads lead to the heart. Just that some roads will get you there a little faster. But yeah. if, you, if you're willing to go into this stuff deep enough, you, are, you cannot avoid coming to the conclusion that there is something going on here that has so much more to it than, you know, what we can experiment on in, in, in a laboratory setting. There's so much more going on here. And at that point, it, you have to surrender some of your ego, <laughs> you know, of being the person who's going to figure this out. You're not going to figure it out, you know, but you can have an awareness, you can have an awakening to it if you prepare yourself for that. That's where the yoga comes in. That's what yoga is doing. That's what we were talking about. Yoga prepares you for the mystic experience. Yoga itself may not be that mystic experience, but it can certainly prepare you for the mystic experience to happen. Sometimes I think that <clears throat> that the audience that keeps science from going to that place of, of 
behind it. It's because if you discovered that, those things of the other in the wrong rainbow, so to speak, then that means that everyone can discover the power that's within their own soul. And if, if, uh, if these things would set you free, then you would no longer be able to use the oppression <laughs> that comes from keeping people in here. We have to remember how terrifying freedom is for people. We have this very beautiful notion of freedom, you know, as being freedom from enslavement to our senses, freedom from our prejudices and our hatreds. The kind of freedom that you're talking about for many people is horrifying, absolutely terrifying. You know, the idea that the world I know that I've worked so hard to construct, you know, you know, is in your mind my prison, you know, and that what's going to be left if I leave that behind? Not everyone's ready to go to that place of, of you know, living in that other realm of, of conscious life. It's very, very difficult. It's I think the realm of love. And sure. that is what people are really afraid of. Why are people afraid of love? Let's discuss. Why are people afraid of love? Well, we've done an awful lot of not-so-great things in the name of love. <laughs> what we call love has been nothing but the bane of my life. It has been the source of all the tragedy I've ever known. I've tried to love. It's never worked. He promised me love, and it ended up being, you know, something else. I was in love, they left me. Right, yeah. you know, it broke my but heart. see, that is not love. That is like what they're talking about in the movie, this observer who measures. <laughs> You can't measure it. It is beyond containment. It's how Truly. sad, but how sad that this is what people, what people have. It's the image that they have. Misunderstanding. Yeah, misdefinition. So we, I think we just need to be cautious about that because it's what contributes, if I sort of take a certain liberty here, it's what contributes to the kind of woo-woo image of yoga people. Woo-woo. Woo-woo. Yeah. You know, people, you know, oh, you, you do yoga. Okay, I get it. It's because too often, sadly, the philosophical side of yoga is neglected. It's not included. We've discussed this before. You know, follow the money. Too much Dharma talk and you're going to lose students. You know? So it's a balance that needs that needs. No, to no. Be. You will never lose students by too much Dharma talk if the one giving the talk is speaking from their heart. Ah, so too much bad Dharma talk. Yeah. Both of you have been on this journey for so long. Shakti, why are you <laughs> hiding back there? Oh, I don't mean to hide. I just sat down. <laughs> And not to measure, I mean, it's measuring it, but you have, you're experiencing some of it, like moments, glimpses of the mysticism. Yeah, those are wonderful yeah. gifts. And everyone has them. Yes. Everyone has them. Just keep it going. <laughs> yeah, everyone has them in, in, to Wait, one degree say? or another. So it keeps, yeah. Keeps well, like, you're, you're, we're experiencing, like, do you feel it elevating? Do you feel it? 
Who when knows and feels it? Marley <laughs> said that. Six-hour clear time. Let's go pretty good. Well, yeah, well, okay, so in clear time. Yes, that's great. clear time. What are some other, have you, can you think of an aha moment that you've had? Well, it keeps me practicing. It keeps me, you know, every time I, when I keep practicing yoga and I float into new postures where if I thought about it, it wasn't going to be, but then... I just kept listening and practicing in the body. Mm. So, so when you find yourself capable of things in yoga that you didn't know you were capable of doing, is that what you mean? Or, you know, or, or like the events that unfolded today were beautiful and I've been, you know, practicing many different things. So I don't have to think that, it, you know, it's part of that. Like, I like, I like to have unfold that. Anyone else have an aha moment recently? You did? What was your aha moment? Well, in my meditations for the past few days, uh, when I chant, I've been cha- I have a commitment with myself to sing a hundred chalice three times every morning. And I noticed that it's going deeper and deeper and deeper the more that I do the chalice. And what's happening is there's this this very powerful experience of love that's coming up for me. And when that happens for me in chanting, I tend to cry. And then I look to see, observe myself crying. And I notice that with the crying was the thought that the love is coming into me. It's out there and it's coming into me. And there was still a little thought that I may not quite deserve it. And so, therefore, I'm crying because I'm so grateful to receive it. And then I realize, boy, I wonder what it would be like to be in the state of consciousness where I no longer see the love coming from outside to inside, but that it's actually already there. And that at some point, probably not in this lifetime, but at some point, instead of reacting to the love through tears and all this emotionality, but, which is a very sweet emotionality. I'm not criticizing myself, but I'm just saying that at some point I'll be at a con- my soul will be at a consciousness where I'll merge into the love rather than seeing myself as a separate being where love is coming from outside to inside. Goodness. Wow. <laughs> oh, right. I'll have what she's having. <laughs> <laughs> and then your, your tears, they will, they will change. They won't be the dripping down kind, they'll be the sprouting out kind. (laughs) The tears of joy. Uh, I don't see the the term in here, but I see it as a misperception of uh, self-preservation. It's the wrong preservation model that we're using. We we naturally want to preserve ourselves in this life, Hmm. so there's there's a separation of us. No, that's nicely said. That's very nicely said. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're, we're conditioned to uh, believe that, that, if, that, that, that we need to defend ourselves in order to preserve our life. So we're living in a constant state of, of defensiveness and aggression. It's a very good, very good observation. It is there in the Bhagavad Gita. You'll find it in... Um, 13th chapter in particular uh, the divine and demonic nature I think that's 13th chapter 
where it's described that there's a certain mindset which says, I'm the one, I'm number one, I gotta look out for number one, basically. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, the Sanskrit here. But I'm, I'm gonna look out for number one. By my designs, I've earned a lot of money, and by my designs, I'm gonna earn more. Uh, I've defeated my competition, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, life is all about sex. I mean, these are actually verses, verses in that chapter. And it's, it's tragic, you know, that we happen to be in a culture that, that cultivates that kind, of, that kind of thing. So, yeah, you come to this stuff and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe I'm actually okay. Maybe I don't need to be so defensive all the time. You know, maybe by Krishna's grace I'm being cared for. My soul is indestructible. Maybe I can make myself available to help others. Yeah, this is a whole other, whole other mindset involved. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to stop here, Joshua. I, know, I saw your hand, but I'm, I'm gonna have to stop just because we have ten minutes and we're gonna finish with an article. And if you want, we can discuss more after. Um, thank you all so much for these wonderful comments and thoughts. Uh, what do you think? That was, a, that was an intriguing little clip there, wasn't it? You know, I want to ask. Is this a different version of, is this a newer version of the film? Possibly. Well, you are unfamiliar with that section? I didn't, I haven't seen that mm -hmm. section. Yeah. Where they have the Ask Mr. Science, you yeah. know. Yeah. That isn't in yeah. the original film. Yeah. Well, this is the deluxe two DVD set. So. Okay. Um, if you're not familiar with RT, it's a very simple offering of the Mahabhuta, the elements of creation, back to Krishna, the source of those elements. And uh, we share the fragrance and the flowers and the water with everyone present. So you're welcome to join us up at the altar. And uh, shall we just chant Hare Krishna while we're doing our tea? Oh, so... <laughs> You're both DJ and Pujari today. <laughs> Pretty good. Yes, it's on. Uh, let's see what If you have the handbook, it's on page three.
It was the book, my birthday. 